Hello, everyone. Welcome to the national webinar on ENT manifestations in ANCA-associated vasculitis. My name is Irene von Hennigs, and I'm the VP of Medical Affairs at Amgen. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you tonight to three experts in the room, Dr. Spira, Dr. Libovics, and the person living with ANCA-associated vasculitis, Stephen Humes. A quick introduction, Dr. Spira is the director of the vasculitis and scleroderma program at the Hospital for Special Surgery. He is the principal investigator in several clinical trials and observational studies. He specializes in rheumatologic conditions, including scleroderma, vasculitis, and systemic lupus erythmososis. He has authored over 150 publications relating to scleroderma, vasculitis, and other rheumatic diseases. Dr. Libovics is an associate professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the ICANN School of Medicine of Mount Sinai in New York City, and he has over 40 years of experience. His specialties include otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. And our person living with ANCA-associated vasculitis is Stephen Humes, and we will go through brief introductions from here. Dr. Spira, if you can give us a, a brief introduction. Thank you so much for having me, and it's a pleasure to be part of this important program. Um, I've been involved in the care of patients with vasculitis, including ANCA-associated vasculitis, for many years. I'm a very active clinician and um, been involved in the care of hundreds of patients with these disorders. Um, I've also been a very active clinical investigator and have had the good fortune to be able to work with colleagues to help develop consortiums who have been able to ask important questions about how to approach these patients. Most importantly, I've been fortunate to work with outstanding other specialists, which is particularly important in ANCA-associated vasculitis, as these are multi-system disorders, and in the otolaryngologic domain specifically, working to optimize the care of the patient is truly a collaborative effort. So I really appreciate you hosting this important program. Thank you, Dr. Spira. And Dr. Libovics, can you give us a brief introduction, please? It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I want to thank Amgen for hosting this. and promulgating this important venue for knowledge and most importantly awareness for other doctors. I've been blessed to have a long-standing experience of treating many patients going back to my years in Bethesda at the National Institutes of Health and now in New York, uh, both in private practice and academic practice. As Dr. Spire alluded to earlier, uh, these patients are complex and they require different specialties. You really need a multi- disciplinary, multifocal group of doctors taking care of people who understand the nuances. And someone like Dr. Spire really exemplifies the true clinician of patient care, caring for patients, investigation, research, and it's just an honor and pleasure to work with him and continue working with him. Thank you, Dr. Libovics. And last but not least, our person living with ANCA-associated vasculitis, Stephen Humes. Stephen, if you can tell us a little bit, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey from diagnosis to what does it mean to be living with ANCA-associated vasculitis, and maybe a little bit on the presentation and the labs during your journey. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this important webinar and to offer my perspective as a person with vasculitis, and in my case, it's a granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or GPA. My journey started rather uncertainly some years ago. I moved down from the New York metropolitan area to North Carolina in 2005, and I began to have severe allergy problems, and they just got worse and worse. 
And then in 2016, I remember going to Chicago for a trip and I was just overcome with fatigue and I could not go to the events that I had scheduled in the evening. I was also having severe, severe congestion and I couldn't sleep at night and I couldn't blow out whatever was in my nasal passages. So my partner said to me, you need to get to an ENT physician promptly. And when I returned to North Carolina, I made an appointment with an ENT physician at UNC Chapel Hill. And I was very fortunate to find somebody who was actually knowledgeable about vasculitis because many ENT physicians are not. And I will never forget the day that he looked into my nose, he scoped my nose, and he said, I have a rather strange question for you. Do you snort cocaine? I said, well, no, I don't think I have recently. And he said, because the kind of scarring I see in your nasal passages is associated either with snorting cocaine or with an autoimmune disorder. So with that, he referred me to the nephrology clinic at UNC Chapel Hill. And there I was actually met with disbelief about my uh, condition. I'm not sure if my lab values did not uh, equate with the person with GPA or if she could not really understand what was going on in my nose, but my ENT physician had to have a conversation with her and convince her that I had GPA. So after that, I began taking a biologic in August of 2016 that kept my illness in remission for roughly six years. And it's been an up and down ride because with the infusion of the biologic, you have flares so that at the end of the six month period, when you should be getting a biologic, you sort of have a, a crash. And then when you get the uh, infusion, you start feeling better. But this past spring, I didn't feel better when I got my infusion. And so we had to look at different st treatment strategies for me. And I can talk about those later if you want me to. Thank you, Stephen. Really appreciate you sharing your story. So Dr. Spira, we heard from Stephen the challenges in diagnosing NK-associated vasculitis, and in that particular case, Stephen is GPA, PR3 positive. From your experience, what contributes to the difficulty and delay in diagnosis of NK-associated vasculitis? There's a lot to unpack from Stephen's story, which really is instructive as to the journey that can take place with these conditions in general. So just listening to it, a few points come to mind. Number one, on some level, uh, Stephen was fortunate to have an otolaryngologist evaluate him early on who wondered about this. All of us often see patients who have clinical complaints in the ENT domain for years or even a decade at times, anybody thinks to look more broadly. So Stephen, on some level, I think you were fortunate to have a very proactive physician who happens to be at one of the major centers for caring for vasculitis. So it was somebody who at least was familiar with this. Number two, the disease can be very different in different people, but often the inspection by an expert in the ENT domain is worth as much, if not more, than some of our other biomarkers and tests. So one of the things that I think Stephen mentioned was that initially, at least, his some of his blood tests were not otherwise supportive, and he was not systemically otherwise very unwell other than fatigue. So these diseases present in different domains. Classically, 
It could present with overwhelming kidney disease and lung disease with bleeding or nodules in the lungs or in conjunction with severe sinonasal disease, but often it starts piecemeal or it can remain limited for many years. And in patients with what we refer to as ENT limited disease, so only in the ENT domain, even our screening blood tests are not particularly sensitive. You know, we talk about ANCA testing which in general, these proteins are detected in maybe up to 90% or more of patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis. But in people with very limited disease, the sensitivity of the test can be as low as 50% or less. So I think what Stephen experienced is not at all unusual in terms of diagnosis and delays of diagnosis, although really some of the diagnostic delay in Stephen's case was his own assumption that the symptoms he was having were allergic, which was a very reasonable assumption. And most people who feel they're having allergies are much more likely to be having allergies, but it hit him in a different way at a point where he brought it to medical attention. Unfortunately, abnormal physical exam findings were recognized and acted upon. Excellent. Thank you. So Stephen described his initial symptoms as allergic reactions. He felt like he was having allergies, but are there any typical ENT manifestations and do they manifest differently between MPA and GPA? If that question is for me, but of course, I'd like to have Dr. Lubovic weigh in on this. Very prominent sinonasal manifestations are much more commonly expected in GPA, in granulomatosis with polyangiitis. Some of this can end up being semantic, how you want to define these different syndromes. And the way we often approach them therapeutically has more to do with the severity of the disease in terms of what drugs we might decide to choose. They're both going to be pretty similar in terms of how you're going to approach them from the standpoint of probably an immunosuppression agent, probably some dose of corticosteroids. But so the distinction becomes a little bit less important. Thank you. Dr. Libovics, anything to add to the manifestation and the difference between MPA and GPA from your opinion? Dr. Spire alluded to, on a practical level, there may not be that much of a difference in treatment. You focus on the disease, uh, the, the target organ. In microscopic polyangitis, it's almost always the kidneys, and then someone's presenting a kidney failure, you, you just got to deal with it. You don't want them to go on dialysis. Uh, biopsy and the anchors come through. I don't want to sound too academic here, but a few years ago, there was a big paper, I think it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they differentiated really what's the difference between microscopic polyangitis and granulomatosis polyangitis, and call them MPA, GPA. For practical purposes, and I think Robbie will agree with me, they are technically two different diseases that are, let's say, more than the same family, they're brothers. Coming full circle, again, deal with the organs that are targeted. Vasculitis targets small vessels. In my world, it's the ear, the tear ducts, the nose, the sinuses, the windpipe, the voice box, uh, the nasal cavity, the bronchi, the trachea, as you keep going down the respiratory tract. If you're a kidney doctor, you're just going to see the kidney manifestations. The question, though, is really the timing. It may not be the presenting feature. They can present with kidney disease and then later end up with tracheal disease, sinus disease, disease in their orbit. They can go blind from it. Uh, so there's really no rhyme or reason to the order, at least not that I'm aware of. So you need the awareness of doctors. You need the collaboration that Dr. Uh, Spire was alluded to. And you need to suspect and experience helps. Thank you. I think you answered my next question, but 
do you consider ENT manifestation, this is both for Dr. Spira and Dr. Lubovics, ENT manifestations, are they organ threatening? Are they organ threatening? Organ threatening. The answer is sure. The answer is absolutely yes. In fact, I'll go one step further. Sometimes it could be life-threatening. Dr. Spire, who shared many patients, I call them, oh my God. Right now we have a patient from Florida who, whose life is on the, on the line literally from uh, what I consider life-threatening disease of the windpipe, the voice box, and the bronchi. A very, very tough case of uh, GPA. So uh, from the life-threatening side of the continuum down to uh, you know, requesting your nose, sounds not so bad. But you know, when you start losing your hearing, that, that, that's a major impairment on people's lives. You can't smell. Uh, if you can't swallow, if you can't breathe, you need a tube in there. If you're in pain, if uh, you've got breakdown of uh, cosmetics, uh, your nose starts collapsing. These are, these are very, very uh, painful things to patients, both physically and emotionally. Thank you, Dr. Um, Spire. Yeah, I'd like to weigh in, and I think it's sort of, Bob spoke to two different points here. The second point has to do with quality of life, and one could argue that that's one of the most important or major determinants of well-being in these patients. But with regard to the more narrow question of can items or, or features in the otolaryngologic domain organ or life-threatening, the answer is absolutely. So people die with sublotic disease, meaning tightening below the larynx that's not recognized. People go blind with retroorbital disease. People go deaf with neurosensory hearing loss. These are really not just sort of subjective calls by us that we think this is important from a quality of life standpoint. There are multiple items in the ENT domain alone that constitute severe disease, you know, including neurosensory hearing loss, including, you know, severe retroorbital disease, which can cause blindness. So I think the answer to your question is yes, there's no question that there can be very severe disease, even just limited to the ENT domain. Right. Thank you. We're going to switch to Stephen now. Stephen, we're talking about the ENT manifestations. Can you tell us about the most severe ENT manifestations that you experienced? Sure. I consider myself very fortunate in that I do not have some of these more complicated manifestations like uh, kidney involvement. I'm a relatively simple GPA patient in that I have sinus involvement and I have great fatigue. But when I was first diagnosed, I was having sinus infection after sinus infection in addition to all of my allergy problems. And that made my ENT physician suspicious. So this was really the first time that I was having the worst ENT manifestations where I could not breathe and I was getting put on antibiotics like every three weeks to try to resolve these infections. And it was very, very hard for me. Then once I was put on the biologic that stabilized me, I had a relatively normal life. I did experience fatigue from time to time. But then, uh, about four months ago, the biologic that I was on simply stopped working. And by this time, I had found my way from nephrology to a rheumatologist who is actually a founder of the Multidisciplinary Vasculitis Center at UNC Chapel Hill. And she said that all my lab markers were normal, essentially, but that it was clear that I was having a flare. So she switched me to an oral medication, and we tried that for about eight weeks, and it simply didn't work. And I was also on a, on a prednisone, too, at the same time. And I failed prednisone, or prednisone failed me, I should say. 
So then we switched to another oral medication, and I think maybe six weeks ago, I was just having a terrible time being unable to sleep at night because my sinus blockage was so intense. I had to sleep virtually sitting up. But eventually, this medication, after about six weeks, began to work, and now I consider myself to be essentially in remission although I do have some residual fatigue still. Thank you for sharing this story. So speaking of the specialists that treated you or all the specialists out there, what would you like to share with them or tell them regarding the impact of ANCA-associated vasculitis on your quality of life? Or let's stick to ENT manifestations. I think that providers need to be aware that ENT manifestations can be extremely debilitating and that you cannot have a terribly good quality of life if you are constantly congested and if you are extremely fatigued. So that in the approximately four months that my GPA was out of control, I wasn't able to do anything, the, my regular activities of daily life. I could not go to the gym. I couldn't take a walk. I couldn't do my chores around the household that I had been assigned. So it can be very debilitating to have these ENT manifestations, even if they're relatively simple in nature. The fatigue associated with GPA can be profound, I have to say. And there are some days that I could not get out of bed. So those were the things that I would like ENT practitioners to know about. Thank you, Dr. Spira and Dr. Lebovic. So in your clinical practice, or in your opinion, when do you think ENT manifestation represent a sign of disease progression? When does a specific manifestation proceed more of a systemic involvement? So let me take the first crack at that only because it's much more of a question mark for me. So I'd make a couple of points about what Stephen was saying. First of all, Stephen, your experience is not unique. And if you look at what patients identify as their major determinants of quality of life or impaired quality of life in GPA, ENT manifestations are very, very, very high on the list, both in terms of how frequent they are and how important patients say they are. And this has been studied. Ironically, with renal disease, which the physicians often feel, you know, well, that's really serious. Those patients generally do really well, and they may lose some renal function early in their disease course, but it's very easy to monitor it and to know where we are, and we have good strategies for keeping it in remission. In the ENT domain, there's sort of two concepts. One is chronic grumbling sinonasal disease, so somebody is doing much better, and their other systems are doing much better, but they still have evidence of active inflammatory disease in the ENT domain, especially sinusitis or other airway issues. And it's hard to know whether more or different immunosuppression would help. The second concept is how much relates to damage versus how much is active disease. So somebody with a narrowed subglottic area, even if there doesn't seem to be any active disease whatsoever, when you know the otolaryngologist inspects them, they're going to have horrible um, dyspnea, difficulty breathing with exertion, and it doesn't represent active disease. And then the third issue is other confounders can make our interpretation of what's going on difficult. So somebody can have you know maybe some degree of chronic grumbling sinonasal disease, and it can be very hard to tease out if they're not having disease activity in other domains, whether it's the disease or whether it's infection. And that's why you know leaning on a colleague that you have a good communicative relationship from the ENT world who knows what they're looking at 
is a huge asset and it's part of what has like I think helped me successfully take the best care of my patients is I have a colleague who I can turn to who I feel is better than a blood test based on his experience at knowing this is active disease this is something else or sometimes I don't know but I would say it's unusual for somebody to be progressing in the ENT domain and us not recognize it as portending a more systemic flare And I'm saying that with a lot of humility because that happened to us recently in the care of a patient we're sharing who presented with what seemed like an infectious mastoiditis with her disease otherwise perfectly well controlled and within three weeks declared herself as having more systemic disease. But I very much want to hear, Bob, what your perspective on that question is because it's, you know, maybe the most important one when managing these patients. Part of what goes on in medicine today, and I think it's a problem, a systemic problem in medicine, is people are too compartmentalized. The kidney doctor just knows creatinines, uh, glomerular filtration rates, and what's in the urine, and maybe the serum electrolytes. But we're dealing with human beings. You're not a kidney. uh, You're not a lung. you're, You're not an ear. You're a human being with multiple nuances and interactions that are all very important. And I also learned as a doctor that whatever it is, nobody appreciates anything that they have until they don't have it, whatever it may be. We often get very excited about oh, a nerve went in the, in the foot, we call it a mononeuritis or the creatinine's going up. But for practical purposes, people don't feel it. Ask Steve what it is to be exhausted. You can't get out of bed. Ask him what it's like to have joint pain that you don't know if it's ever going to go away and you can't walk to the bathroom. Ask him what it's like when you can't hear and your ears are blocked and hurting. I can go on and on and on uh, as to whether this is disease, disease progression or infection. Well, Dr. Spira has very appropriately alluded to that. Uh, I think, Rob, you would agree that uh, uh, intervention sooner than later, both medically, surgically, is ultimately really in the best interest of a person. And I stress the issue here. You're a human being. You're not a nose. You're not a sinus. You're not a hearing test. You're not a nerve conduction study. I'm interested to see how Steve might feel about that because, you know, he's obviously experienced it from the other end. Excellent. Thank you. A perfect segue. You mentioned remission. Stephen also mentioned remission. When do you deem a patient to be in remission and what definition of remission do you follow, if any? So I would say remission is a tricky word to define on some level, but not so much on other levels. So in many of our major domains of this disease, it's easy to define remission. It's mostly easy to define when somebody's in remission, let's say, in terms of their renal disease. The creatinine's stable. The urine analysis is without active sediment, meaning red cells and casts and whatnot, although you can get chronic red cells in somebody with damage from the disease. But mostly that's easy to define. From the pulmonary standpoint, if somebody is you know, you can be in remission and still have big pulmonary nodules. They don't have to go away entirely. But if somebody's pulmonary nodules are remaining stable and not progressive, you can deem them in remission. Skin disease is pretty easy to know when it's remission. They're not having active rashes. Musculoskeletal disease, meaning true inflammatory arthritis, is pretty easy to know when they're in remission. The hardest domain still to me to know whether somebody's in a meaningful remission, again, goes back to the otolaryngologic domain because so much of the symptoms can be persisting even at a point where a patient doesn't otherwise seem to have active disease. So that person is a setup for future infections 
or may just have chronic inflammation on that basis. So those are those patients that we talk about grumbling disease that we think are not perfectly totally in remission, but they're not people in whom we're necessarily upping the ante in terms of an immunosuppressive therapy. Thank you for that. Stephen, what is your definition of remission? Well, I would say that remission to me means that my nasal symptoms have largely subsided and that I have the energy to go to the gym, to do uh, tasks of daily living, and to be able to get up at a normal hour. And so I can't say that I'm really fully in remission because I I still have terrible sinus problems and I'm still unsure, is this allergies or is this GBA or what's going on here? I do have terrible allergy problems to this day that it's very hard to, and I confuse them with my GPA. And my fatigue, it's hard to say if that is the aging process, if that is GPA, if that is allergies, because allergies can make you very fatigued. So I have this multiplicity of things going on and I get very confused. But I did want to say that I'm not just a kidney, I'm not just a nose, and I'm still in mourning for the loss of my old self. That. I'm not the person that I used to be, and I can't ever expect that to return. And that has made me very sad in many ways. And so I've been in therapy for many years trying to cope with that sense of loss that I have. And it's made me um, also rather, rather unreliable as a friend and as a partner. And so I would like to be in remission so that I can be a reliable friend and I can one, be a person who could be counted upon to show up. Because I remember one person when I was early on in the diagnostic stages said to me, a friend show up, you do not. And that was really very hurtful to me. And I actually lost that friendship because of her, her disbelief in what was going on with me. So I feel as if I disappoint my partner I disappoint my friends and remission I need to talk about with my rheumatologist because I have an appointment with her next week and I really wonder if I'm at a therapeutic dose of my drug because I still feel so fatigued. I was able to get to the gym for the first time last week for the first time in five months. And I, it was hardly a um, strenuous workout, but even after a workout that's not strenuous, I feel extremely tired. So remission is, it's a little fuzzy for me at times. Thank you, Stephen. So Dr. Libovics, we're going to switch to you. And by the time patient comes to you, what do their ENT manifestations look like? And what kind of quality of life are they having? Most of the patients with GPA that I see come uh, pre-diagnosed. Uh, can count on one hand the number of patients since I've diagnosed the de novo. So in a way, that makes it easy for me. What I usually have to often do is spend time confirming that I'm, at least to my satisfaction, I'm dealing with GPA unless I know the rheumatologist. For example, if Dr. Spire says I have a patient with GPA or probable GPA, I could take that to the bank. Uh, if it's somebody I don't know, I want to see the path, the tissue. Uh, so in terms of your question is what is presenting anything uh, north of the collarbone? 
think of GPA as a disease of respiratory tissue. And, and Rob, I mean, Dr. Spires heard me say this many times. Wherever there's respiratory tissue, it's called epithelial respiratory tissue, ciliated respiratory epithelium. That's the target organ in GPA. So where does that exist? Well, it doesn't exist in your liver. That's why you don't see GPA in the liver because you, know, you just don't have that target organ there. The kidney is a unique issue. And MPA is probably a different disease. Again, that's not for this discussion. But wherever you're going to see this respiratory tissue, that's where it can attack. In the middle ear, in the mastoid. Well, you can have a blocked ear, you can have pain, you can have hearing loss. Conductive hearing loss, neural-based hearing loss. As I've spoken with Dr. Spire many times, a lot of people get upset if you have a nerve in the lower extremity going out, but if it's the hearing nerve, the eighth cranial nerve, they don't get that excited. And those can collapse. You have no idea what the psychological trauma that could be to somebody to have a saddle deformity, especially younger people who are in the dating world. That ability to smell through your nose, breathe through your nose, excessive tearing, double vision, your eyeball popping out, losing vision. I had a case going back many, many years ago when I was in Bethesda, a girl who came from what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, uh, had very bad GPA, terrible what we call retroorbital disease. She needed her eye nucleated for the pain. She just, that was the way to solve her complaint. It was, you know, ocular pain, orbital pain. What I do a lot of in the operating room is deal with people's uh, windpipe and their bronchi and their voice box. But these are, again, all areas with this ciliated respiratory epithelium. Thank you. Can you give us an example of what do you see that takes that patient to reconstructive surgery? One of the most satisfying types of cases I do, although we don't do that many of them, is when I reconstruct the saddle nodes. For whatever reason, both men and women are very, very sensitive to their facial appearance. I get it. I respect it. They say rhinoplasty is an art of millimeters. When you see somebody with a collapsed nose, what's called a saddle nose deformity, and it, it puts tremendous psychological pressure on someone. I'll give you an example. I once operated on a girl from Pittsburgh uh, with a bad saddle range. We never could get her off her meds. And my whole point is she didn't really meet the criteria, but this was a woman in her early 30s, wanted to meet a man, wanted to get married. She was working as a, as a nursery school teacher, and she lost it when it broke down. When she overheard the kids talking about playing the game, and the teacher, what's her name, Miss So-and-so, was the monster, you know, with the ugly nose or something. You know, these were four-year-old children, and and she actually ended up with a very good result. I always tell them I want to go for the bronze medal, not the gold medal here. So that's the type of reconstruction that for somebody who's what I believe is in remission, but most importantly, the rheumatologist feels in remission, we can be very, very, can be satisfying. Draining an ear for hearing loss, very, very, very satisfying. They can't hear, now they can hear. Uh, the other thing I do a lot of with Dr. Spire is helping people breathe. They're narrow, they're walking time bombs. You can put a trach tube in. Most people don't like that. So we have this technique of uh, doing this endoscopically through the mouth with, without cutting on the outside. And next day they go jogging or three days later they're home jogging. And it's, it's a very satisfying thing. So sometimes it's medicine, sometimes it's surgery. Often it's a combination, but always in a collaborative fashion. Thank you. And you, do you feel that after doing your reconstructive surgery or whatever surgery the patient needs, do, do they get closer to a better quality of life? Are we able to get them closer to, to that point? Sure. As someone who's basically a cripple and can't walk up a flight of stairs and then goes uh, next week to the gym and is doing uh, you know, the bicycle. In fact, uh, Dr. Spy, we have a patient in common. I just operate on last week. I obviously can't say the name. She's a new person now. So in that sense, uh, it's very, very helpful. It's very satisfying. They feel the improvement. It, Hearing, not only do they feel, you can measure it. 
Smell is not something we can quantify. We can only test it qualitatively. Facial pain is very, very, uh, very easy to measure. People you know, are reasonable. If it hurts, usually could take them uh, at their word, which actually brings me one point, which I think is so critical, and it's maybe a little bit from before, but we talked about flaring, and I don't know if uh, Dr. Spiral agreed with me on this, but in my experience, when a patient's known to have GPA Wegner's, if they come back and tell me, tell me they think it's back, quote, it's back, you could take it to the bank. Uh, they know before I do. They know before the blood tests do. They know before Dr. Spira does. They just know. You got to listen to them. They're very smart. They know their bodies better than we do. Uh, and part of what I do is just listening. Thank you. Stephen, what advice, what points do you want to communicate to persons living with NCA-associated vasculitis and the physicians that, the specialists or physicians that are treating NCA-associated vasculitis? Well, I want to underscore what was last said about listening to the patient because the patient is the expert on his or her condition. My ENT physician said that if I felt that a flare was coming on, I was always correct. And I think patients are the best judge of their situations. And so it's important, very important for ENT physicians to listen to their patients, listen very carefully to what they say. And when the nephrologist told me that I didn't have GPA, I felt really unheard. So I'm very fortunate that I have an ENT physician and a rheumatologist who both listen to me and pay attention to what I'm saying. That's why I'm thinking that when I see my rheumatologist next week and tell her that I'm not feeling quite up to snuff, that she will take that very seriously and look at my medication carefully. Thank you, Stephen. So this has been an incredible discussion, incredible stories, sharing your experiences. Last words from Dr. Spira. First of all, again, I wanted to thank you for hosting this because it's important to focus on this part of the spectrum of these diseases. Um, and I want to in particular thank Stephen for sharing his story because I think for other clinicians listening, it really brings it to life. These are really difficult domains of the disease to treat. It involves collaboration, as we talked about, and collaboration is different physicians with each other, but most importantly, different physicians listening to the patient. But um, I think our understanding, better understanding of the science of these diseases also, we should mention, has paved ways towards understanding other pathways that are potential targets of therapy. And I think we're going to see better things medically and surgically, honestly, for treating these disease manifestations in this very complicated patient group. So thank you for bringing light to this. Thank you, Dr. Spira. Dr. Lubovics, one last word from you. Just to echo Dr. Spire's sentiment, I first want to thank Amgen, and uh, I want to thank the you know, research community, both uh, medical and pharmaceutical, because, again, I talk often about collaboration, and you are part of this collaboration. In terms of Steve, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it's a partnership. Uh, the patient is the center of all this, and we're just peripheral uh, you know, actors in trying to bring this together. Thank you so much. I want to conclude this webinar by thanking Stephen for coming to the studio and sharing your story with us. We really appreciate that. Dr. Spira and Dr. Lebovics, your expertise is always much appreciated. Thank you so much for giving us the time and sharing your experiences with us.